Thanks be to God. I read a really interesting article this week on the importance of play and recreation, uh, and it began by a quote um, from a, a guy named Stuart Brown who tells a story of an encounter of a 1,200-pound polar bear and a Canadian Eskimo sled dog. So as far as I know, this is a true story, um, but I didn't witness it. Um, this uh, dog was staked out near a camp and um, then suddenly sees this polar bear approaching. Uh, this happened in November, and the sea is not yet frozen, and that means um, the, the bears have not been able to hunt for seals. So, uh, in other words, this bear is starving. The bear continues toward the dog, seemingly thinking that this is um, kind of sizing up its next meal. Um, and then something strange and unexpected happens. The dog, who obviously is seriously outmatched, uh, bows its head and starts wagging its tail. And then all of a sudden, the bear sort of starts loping up towards the dog. And a moment later, the two of them are wrestling with each other. And there's like an acrobatic dance of sorts in the snow where the two are softly nipping at each other and pulling each other's fur. And after about 15 minutes, the bear departs seemingly uplifted by the friendly and playful encounter, um, if still emaciated and hungry. Now, the bear obviously could have devoured the dog and addressed its you know, life-threatening concern for food, um, but in that moment, there was something that was more important to the dog than food. I'm sorry, more important to the bear than food, um, which was play, right? The, the bear literally wanted to play. Uh, I love this idea that there is something in play, or when we uh, talk about it as adults, we, we say recreation, something in recreation that is literally life-giving for us, right? That, that sometimes is more important than our, our most basic needs, that we recognize it as humans. It's true even for the rest of God's creation. Uh, and, and there's a connection here, I think, um, between the idea of recreation and what God does in creation. So, uh, Jürgen Moltmann says this. He says, um, God's creation of the universe is a divine form of play. That God doesn't make the universe because God's at work and needs to get something done, because God is lonely and needs someone to play with, because God is bored and wants something to do. God makes the universe because it's fun, right? It brings God joy and delight. And this idea that, that creation um, is life-giving to God, like recreation is life-giving to us, is really compelling for me. So, um, I want to look at Genesis 8 and think about it as a literal recreation, creation moment that's life-giving for everyone. Uh, so, you might have noticed some of the parallels between the Genesis 8 story and the Genesis 1 story, but if you didn't, I, I wrote them down for you, okay? And so, I got one, just one slide today. Um, uh, but I, I hope you noticed some of this. If you didn't, on the left you see Genesis 1 quotes, and on the right you see Genesis 8 quotes. Notice that both stories begin with a wind from God blowing over the waters. 
Uh, oh, by the way, remember in, in the first chapter of Genesis, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? God makes these two realms, the heavens where the sun, the moon, and the stars are, where angels rule, whatever, and the earth where animals and, and humans are and where humans rule. In the flood, God doesn't destroy the heavens, just the earth. And so we're going to see a recreation story just of the realm of the earth. Um, so we don't get day one where God makes light or day four where God makes the sun, the moon, and the stars. That's the heavens. But we have all these parallels with God recreating the earth. So uh, on day two in the creation story, God separates the waters above from the waters below. In our story in Genesis 8, God stops the fountains of the deep and closes the windows of the heavens and ends the rain, right, separating the waters. Uh, day three, God makes the dry land appear in Genesis 1. Um, in our story in Genesis 8, um, the mountains begin to become visible, right? They literally start peeking up from the waters. Day three, also, God makes vegetation spring up in the land. There's some significance to the fact that the dove comes back with an olive leaf, right? The timing is right. Uh, day five, remember day four is the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day five, God makes birds to fill the sky. Uh, and in our story, God sent, uh, Noah sends out the raven. Noah sends out the dove, right? The, the skies are populated first. Uh, and then day six, the land animals come out uh, and the humans are made. And, and literally in our story, the animals come out of the ark, the humans come out of the ark. Uh, two other kind of um, pattern connections. You notice, remember in Genesis 1, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and He saw that it was good. Uh, this pattern of God speaking and then it happening is exactly what we see in the last part of, of this section of Genesis 8, where God says to Noah, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your son and your son's wives. And then Noah's wife and his son and his son's wives and Noah all go out of the ark. Um, oh, and the last thing God, I didn't make it on my screen. The last thing God says is be fruitful and multiply, right? So, Moses, who wrote Genesis, is very clearly making a connection. He wants us to notice that God is recreating the earth, right, with all of these parallels to the first story. Um, but here's what really strikes me as so important. Um, as God does this, He's not creating a new earth. He's recreating the old. This is an interesting decision. You can take my slide off. Thank you. Um, God doesn't say, boy, I'm, I'm so over the humans. I'm going to get rid of all of them. I'm going to make some kind of new dirt creature that'll be better. No, God says, yeah, we have major problems, but, but I'm going to work with what we got. God doesn't look at His universe and say, hey, the universe is so ruined by violence and sin and evil that I'm going to wipe it out and make a new world. God says, no, we're, we're going to do some work, but I'm going to, I'm going to work with what we've got. Um, that God has this interest and this desire to recreate and to restore and to renew rather than just washing His hands and starting over. And this is a hugely important point in the whole story of Scripture, um, that God's going to be a God who's about recreation and renewal to bring life. I, I came across something recently I'd never heard of before, um, and this is a, a, a form of Japanese pottery, okay? And I, I will confess I know very little about pottery, um, but uh, the Japanese history of pottery is long, you know, thousands of years, and they make this beautiful art. Um, 
But, but there's a tradition that about 500 years ago, there was a Japanese emperor who had a bowl he loved, and it broke. And so he sent it across the ocean, uh, I think to China, or I'm not sure where, somewhere to the mainland, uh, to say, hey, I need you to repair my broken bowl. And it came back to him repaired, but it was just ugly. It had these just like metal staples in it. And he was like, I hate this. And so he went to his artisans and he said, I need a better way to fix things. And they came up with something that's used today, and I'm going to say it wrong. It's called um, kintsugi. And kintsugi literally means golden joining or golden repair. And what they would do is they would take a broken piece of pottery and they'd take something precious like gold or silver or platinum uh, and they would mix it with, with a lacquer um, powdered dust uh, and they would use it to heal the broken bowl. And I got a couple of pictures of Kintsugi. This is an ancient um, bowl. I don't remember how old, but hundreds of years old. And can you see the, the gold lines in it? Okay. Um, go to the next one. Um, it really becomes beautiful, doesn't it? Um, do me one more. Um, just leave that one there for a second. Oh, actually, I think I have one more after that. Yeah, leave that one up for a second. Um, it's, it's a really fascinating form of art. What, what strikes me as so significant uh, is that this form of pottery repair treats the breaking um, as, as part of the history of the object rather than something to disguise or hide, right? Um, raise your hand if you've ever broken a bowl in your house before or a plate or a cup. Okay, what do you do with it when it's broken? You throw it away, right, and you get a new one. Um, they don't, at least some don't, right? They say, hey, instead of throwing away this broken object, I'm going to take something even more valuable, even more precious, and I'm going to use it to heal this object, to put it back together again. And the end is going to be more beautiful than the beginning. This is what God does, right? God says, hey, the world is broken and, and people are broken. Uh, and I could just throw it out and start over. But that's not what I want to do. Um, I want to take something of incredible value to me, someone of incredible value to me, and, and I'm going to use what's most precious to me to put back together your world and your life and make you better than you used to be. Recreation is an act of salvation, right? It's an act of, of God pouring um, the blood of His Son into the broken places of our lives, making us not only whole again, but more beautiful in the process. Uh, Hemingway has that famous quote, right? The world breaks everyone and many are afterwards are stronger in the broken places. Um, I, I love that this is not just a, a story we get in Genesis 8. This is a consistent message of Scripture. We see it again in 2 Corinthians, right, where God says, um, behold, I'm making all things… I'm sorry, uh, that's Revelation. Um, 2 Corinthians, where God says, um, you are a new creation. Everything has become new. He's not saying at this point, I'm starting over. You no longer have your old personality or your old history or your old body. He doesn't say you're no longer you. He says, I'm taking you and I'm going to restore you. I'm going to recreate you into something better after I put you back together. Uh, and I love at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, God says, behold, I am making all things new. He does not say, behold, I am making all new things. He doesn't say, all the pots are broken, we're going to go buy new pots. 
He says, I'm going to take all the broken things. I'm going to make them like new again. This, this idea of, of recreation is a critical part of salvation, and it's a huge part of the story and the story of Noah. But it's not the end. Uh, and this is really important. There are two huge pieces of the salvation process that we get in chapter 8 of, of Genesis. One is this idea of, of God's passion for recreation and redemption and restoration. But there's another piece that happens that's really interesting. I don't know if you noticed, um, but after the flood, God is talking to Himself, and He has an interesting comment. God says, every inclination of man's heart is, is evil, is raw from youth. And I think we have to ask the question, did the flood work? What was the flood effective. I mean, from a justice perspective, all those violent, horrible people are, are no longer violent and horrible, and the suffering of the world ended sooner than it would have ended on its own. And uh, the Nephilim, the weird uh, angel-human hybrid craziness, that, that, that got sorted out a little bit. But, but what we're being told is after the flood, um, God's going to recreate the world and people are still sinful. We, we didn't solve the underlying problem. Ooh, by the way, who's left at this point in the flood? I mean, after the flood. There's only one group of people. Who is it? Noah and his family. So when God says the inclination of man's heart is evil from youth, He's talking about Noah's family, right? They're the only people left. And so uh, I think we have to ask, I mean, did the flood fail? Are we going to do this again every few generations where God wipes out the earth because people become violent and awful? Uh, and the answer, um, the answer is no, um, but, but with a reason. Uh, and the reason comes in chapter 8, verse 20. The first thing Noah does when he leaves the ark, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Re remember we talked about there's like seven pairs of the clean animals, and this is why, right? Because God's going to offer a sacrifice from the clean animals. I'm sorry, Noah will offer a sacrifice from the clean animals. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing odor, the Lord said in His heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humankind, even though the inclination of human hearts is evil from youth nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I have done. So, something happens in this sacrifice that changes God's mind about he's, how He's going to react and relate to the world He just recreated and restored. Uh, a, a lot of little cool details in this story. Um, one little cool detail. Um, remember somebody else that offered an animal sacrifice in the book of Genesis? His name was Abel. His brother Cain offered a sacrifice, but God liked his more. So we're thinking about Abel's sacrifice. Also, um, we're told this is a burnt offering. Literally, it's a going up offering. And at this point in the story, we don't know what that means. But Noah's, I'm sorry, um, Moses' audience reading this book does. A burnt offering is the most expensive kind of offering because you burn the whole animal. Okay, normally you bring an offering to the temple or the tabernacle, they butcher it, they burn some parts, and then you go home with some food to eat. With a burnt offering, they burn it all up. So Noah is offering the most precious, expensive kind of offering that he has. 
uh, and, and God um, smells the offering and it smells soothing. Uh, again, just fun things, but the, the word soothing is Noah. It smells like Noah. I mean, it's got a Noah smell to it. It's got a resting smell to it. Um, and God says, a righteous man partnering with me, offering an extremely costly sacrifice, can change how I see the world. A righteous man partnering with God offering an extremely costly sacrifice can change how God sees the world. And, and this moment of Noah's sacrifice is at least as important as the ark because it's the reason there's not another ark 100 years later or 200 years later or 200 years after that. Right? Uh, okay, um, I'm trying really hard to not say the word Hebrew, um, but the, the language in which this is written um, has some really fun words, and um, the, the word this language uses for curse is interesting. Because up to this point, almost every time we've heard the word curse, um, it's been a, a word that means, you know, want bad things for or, or to, to be negative towards. Uh, it literally means to curse. Uh, and we were told um, back in chapter 5, verse 29, I think, that Noah was going to undo the curse in the ground. And here he's undoing it with his sacrifice. Um, but when God says, I will never again curse the ground, he doesn't use the same word. He uses a word that means treat as cursed. There's a huge difference between something being cursed and treating something as cursed. Uh, and, and what changes is God says, hey, you know what? Yep, the world's still messed up and people are still going to be sinful and bad things are still going to happen, but I'm not going to treat them like they deserve to be treated. Okay, so maybe you have, um, at some point in your life, flown through LaGuardia Airport. Anybody ever been to LaGuardia Airport? Okay. Um, if you're, if you've heard of LaGuardia, it's a big airport in New York. Um, if you, maybe you've heard about who LaGuardia is named after. LaGuardia was a mayor of New York City uh, in the end of the Great Depression and throughout all of World War II. Um, and really an interesting guy. I'm going to say his first name wrong. It's like Fiorello LaGuardia. Um, and he was called the little flower because he was five foot four and he always had like a, a car, uh, carnation in his lapel. Um, and he just did all kinds of crazy stuff. He would ride with the firemen on the fire trucks. He would go with the police on raids. Uh, there were times where uh, LaGuardia would take an entire orphanage to a baseball game. Just a really interesting guy. So Brennan Manning tells a story about one day um, when, one evening, when Mayor LaGuardia came into night court uh, and the poorest ward in his city. And he tells the judge to take the night off, and he sits on the bench to do the judge's job. Um, in a few minutes, uh, a tattered old woman comes before him, and she's charged with stealing a loaf of bread. She told LaGuardia that her daughter's husband had deserted her, that her daughter was sick, and that her two grandchildren were starving. But the shopkeeper uh, who from whom the bread was stolen, said, you know, i got to press charges here because, you know, this is a bad neighborhood. And, you know, if we don't um, make an example out of her, this will keep happening over and over again. So LaGuardia sighed, and he turns to the woman and he says, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. Ten dollars or ten days in jail. And 
in the middle of the Great Depression in, the, in 1935, $10 is a lot of money. But even as he pronounced his sentence, he reaches in his pocket, he takes out his billfold, he takes a bill out, and he throws it into his famous, he had a big old sombrero hat he always wore, he throws it into his big old hat, and he says, here's the $10 fine uh, that I have made and now remit. Furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this classroom, everyone in this courtroom, 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. Mr. Bailiff, collect the fines and give them to the defendant. So the following day, the New York City newspapers reported that $47.50 was turned over to a bewildered old lady who'd stolen a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. Fifty cents of that amount contributed by the red-faced grocery store owner, while some 70 petty criminals, people with traffic violations, and New York City policemen, each of whom had just paid 50 cents for the privilege of doing so, gave the mayor a standing ovation. At no point is she told that she's not guilty. At no point is she told uh, that stealing was okay. At no point is she told that she doesn't have to pay the fine. She's simply not treated like her actions deserve. Oh, and by the way, I love the fact that the accuser has to help pay to support her. Do you know what the… I'm sorry. Do you know what the Hebrew word for accuser is? Satan. Satan means accuser. Her accuser has to pay. I love this idea that this is what God does for us, right? That in, in the story of salvation, God says, you might deserve one thing, but I will not treat you like you deserve. You might be selfish or sinful or broken. You might have messed up this week or last month or 10 years ago. You might be caught in all kinds of horrible patterns of, of selfishness or destructiveness, but I will not treat you like you deserve, not because of what you've done, but because there was a righteous man who offered an incredibly costly sacrifice. And through his sacrifice, through his blood, I'm going to put your life back together again, and it's going to be more right and more beautiful and more perfect than it was before you began. Thanks be to God that we are not treated as we deserve. Thanks be to God that He is not a God who wants to make new things, but to make things new. Thanks be to God that in Christ we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Thanks be to God. Amen.